So again, we are trying to cover way more than we can adequately cover in an hour. Three, three topics that could take, we could spend a week on probably. So I just request the panel, we've got to keep our answers short and really powerful. Try to make up with your choice of words the fact that we don't have a lot of time. So I, I'm kind of thinking we'll just divide it into three 20-minute segments, basically. Weeds, pests, and diseases. Uh, and, and what I would like us to do is just share briefly some of the things we've found to be effective. We'll start with weed control. And, uh, and then hopefully there'll be a little time if there are specific questions. So are we good with that? Who'd like to start? How do you manage weeds on your farm? I guess I'm the closest, so I'll go first. Um, well, the, the proper tool is probably the best place to start. Um, and uh, the first tool that I would recommend is a nice hoe. Um, bread prep, I mean, before that, you know, you have bed preparation, how you prepare the beds. You can do stale bedding. There's different techniques and, and all of those things. But at the end of the day, the most rudimentary, fundamental tool is going to be a hoe on my farm. Can you be more specific kind of hoe? Um, well, my preferred hoe is a is actually a $15, what they call a hulip hoe, or hoop, a stirrup hoe. And the reason I like it is um, I can pretty much do whatever I want with it. They're, they're, depending on the plant and depending on the spacing and, and different things, there may be better hoes for different projects. But that particular hoe, for me, uh, just works really well. A lot of people sharpen their hoes. I do not sharpen my hoes. I'm a contrary farmer, maybe. But uh, the dull hoe has a tendency to pull the weeds out as opposed to just cut them off. And I kind of like, I, I feel like they don't uh, return as easy depending on the weed. And so, is that specific enough? Um, our first line of defense against the weeds is uh, by transplanting as many of the crops as we can. We start them in a, in a hoop house and uh, we set the plants into freshly prepared beds. Uh, and that gives us a head start, but what I have found to be most effective for us is that if we get our soil chemistry balanced, um, I'll say properly, but that's probably not the best term. If I balance the soil chemistry the way I think the soil chemistry needs to be balanced, we've found that in the last three years, most of our weed problems have diminished pretty dramatically, and the weeds that we do have are actually edible weeds. We actually took some purslane to the farmer's market because my big weed problems now are purslane, chickweed, and lamb's quarters. So that to us is, is not that significant a problem. Another uh, very important rule is that we never allow weeds to go to seed on the farm. Even if they happen to get away from us and we have to go out with a weed eater through the watermelon vines and top the weeds so that they don't go to seed, we do not allow weeds to go to seed. Uh, we use also uh, mulching techniques on some of our beds, not all of them, uh, but between the transplanting, the soil chemistry, and, and uh, uh, appropriate use of mulching, weeds are really not a significant problem for us, whereas for, for many people, that's the big obstacle to, to, to growing crops. 
Uh, yeah, some of those things uh, similar to my place. Um, although we do some orchard crops as well in regard to the, the uh, row crops, transplants, uh, we use a, a mulch, plastic mulch. We have a mulch layer and then we cultivate beside the plastic with a tractor and a cultivator. When the tomatoes get too tall, we either use a hula hoe or rototiller and we're working maybe some more with a wheel hose trying to get those to, do, to work with those more. But one of my things is I tell people, you know, about weeding is I don't consider weeding a productive uh, way to, to work your weeds. I tell them cultivate. Don't let your weeds even get going, you know, or just very little. As soon as it rains, we try to get in and cultivate. As soon as we water, so controlling your water is one thing. Say, for example, in our orchard, my walnuts, the one I planted those, we decided to bury our drip lines. I'd start them with drip. And by burying my drip lines, I could mow over them. Plus, I, I put in a, a pot, a small pot by every dripper. So my water went sub, it didn't come to the surface. Everything stayed underground. But I could still see the dripper and manage that. So that was one way to manage my weeds and my walls. And eventually, we start mowing. And then we're using, in our orchard, we're using a, uh, a mowing, a lot of mowing. And then we just recently started using a string weeder, which is kind of a unique tool. It's a vertical twiner, which actually will then clean right around the trunk of the tree. I had in my presentation yesterday, if you'd seen that, that's something I'm looking into more. A neighbor uses that, and I'm kind of thinking that's probably a good idea as the trees get older. Um, boy, you know, it's multiple. You know, it depends on the weeds you're growing. We try to tr trim off our seeds, like for Johnson grass. It comes up from a root, and uh, same thing with morning glory. We cultivate that out. Got to deep cultivate to get rid of morning glory. Got to cut it out deep. Otherwise, it just, you know, keeps, you got to just cut it off and cut it off so it doesn't keep getting sunlight. And... I mean, shovels with Johnson grass, you know, digging out the roots and those kind of things. We've tried chemical weeding, like with um, some of the newer types of weed, weed materials. Uh, but I've kind of gone back to say, what's a root? If we're going to use those, like, say, vinegar, acetic acid, and, say, orange oil, which is, you know, helps spread the vinegar to, kill, to burn the weeds if they're real small. That's one, one type of material that's been used in, for chemical-type weeding in the organic systems. I've found a lot of times that just, you know, if they've already gotten ahead of the view, it's, it just doesn't work. Burns the tops, they come right back. So that hasn't been real effective. Um, you know, there's, with the amount of time, you know, various things, a weed battle is a big one. We, we fight it all the time. In my farm, it's like, I tell the help, help is I hate weeds. I don't want them, but, you know, it's inevitable we get some. So that's our, some of our battles. If you're starting a new farm and you have the space available, um, and you're dealing with something like we were with uh, Bermuda grass. Um, I don't know who here deals with Bermuda grass. Anyone? Okay, it just keeps going, going, going. Um, sorghum Sudan grass. Till up that area, plant some sorghum Sudan grass. Uh, make sure it's got a sufficient amount of nitrogen, but it can grow up to 14 feet tall, and it'll outcompete any weed that I know of as height, and it'll basically just starve it out by shade. You don't see Bermuda grass growing under a really shady tree, and it's the same concept. Um, so if you can do that, you can break a lot of weed cycles that way. If you can stand to not let that land be under production for one season, you'll cut your battle short in the long run with Bermuda, especially. Um, another thing that uh, we use is intensive succession of our crops. If that crop doesn't need to be in there, get it out and get something else in there, whether it's a cover crop or something. Break those weed cycles. Um, we dealt with some big issues with, with weeds coming up in certain areas. 
And, uh, but since we've started really succession cropping more, that, those crops don't sit in the ground because they need to come out right away and something else put in there. It doesn't let weeds get established to the point of, of going to seed. And now you have a whole empty bed that you can just get everything out of and then plant something new. And that's really been beneficial because when those crops come up, it comes out, you're basically hitting the weeds. You're hitting your spring weeds and then your summer weeds and then your fall weeds because you're successioning about those times. And so you're knocking them out right when they're coming up, and that's really been, I've noticed that being a very effective for us this year. I will mention in your home garden, if you can keep it clean, it makes gardening a pleasure. I would say that uh, the answer to weeding is simple, but simple does not mean easy. Amen. You know, it's simple. Little attentions often repeated is exactly what it takes don't weed cultivate you know if you can get them before you even see them you know when they're in the thread stage uh, your your weeding problems are never a problem you know but saying that does not mean we don't ever deal with weeds because there's a lot of other things you're dealing with besides weeding on a farm um, just a quick comment on the the hula hoe just to help you think like a farmer you know, the old-fashioned hoe is only chopping um, half the time. The other half of the time, it's in the air, which is very inefficient. So with a hula hoe, a stirrup hoe, you're always in contact with the ground. You're cutting on the push and on the pull, and that greatly increases your efficiency. One other thing I just want to mention that has really been revolutionary for us, and it was new to us this year, so I, I don't have a track record with it, but um, when we went to Jean Martin's farm up in, in Quebec, we saw him using tarps, silage tarps. And this summer we had a unique challenge. We had a very vigorous spring garden, and then we had a very wet June, which is when all the grasses are coming up, and, and grasses are really a challenge in the summer. So when our spring crops came out, I actually just went in there and weed-eated, cut it all down, covered it with tarps, and a few weeks later, you pull back the tarp and you have a totally new start. It's incredible. Um, you know, the, the worms and all the biology is working underneath there. They've broken down your residue on the surface, and it was, I don't know how we would have managed this season without it. It really revolutionized our garden this summer. And I was just going to mention one of the things that we don't think about is we think of weeds in terms of the problems that they give us, but some of them can be beneficial. They, they can have, my wife is a dietitian, and so if you have a totally clean bed and there's no weed pressure, um, there's, there's an immune system that's in the plant. And, and if the immune system of the plant isn't taxed to some degree with pressures, you have actually a, a less nutrient-dense food. And so there, there, there's a balance there, I think, that we want to balance on, on the pressures we allow and, and the idea of these perfect, absolutely weed-free beds. You know, there's, there's a reality to how nature works. It works in tandem together, and we want to sort of you know, balance all that stuff. And a weed, if I have lettuce, let's say, in a, in a salad mix, and sometimes my salad mix lettuce goes to seed because I don't have time to, to 
take that bed out before I'm moving on down the, my next succession plantings. I have lettuce come up, but lettuce isn't a weed. But if it's a plant that I didn't intend to be there, it's a weed now, right? And so a weed isn't, is, you know, measurable. It's just something that's happening in a place that you don't want it. One other thing that I wanted to add to a strategy that is very helpful to us is is the plant population itself. Um, you know, we plant on beds. We have multiple rows of crops on the beds. We're using transplants, and our our concept here is to have the plant when it's about halfway to maturity to provide a canopy over the bed so that it's self-mulching, and that has worked very effectively for us too. We have very few problems with weeds in those beds. Typically, we can get away with cultivating them uh, no more than twice. Oftentimes, we'll only need to cultivate once uh, before those beds close over, and the crop itself uh, provides protection uh, from weeds. Time we have on this, but just this spring, I visited a friend's farm in Orville, and he Woodleaf Farms. If you want to look up his website, he's probably got something on Woodleaf Farms. Woodleaf, Woodleaf names Carl Woodleaf, names Carl Rosato. His farm, he basically lets everything grow, so it's a totally different type of look. I mean, he's got so it provides what he considers beneficial habitat and all those things. So his orchard is, is you know, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic. They're trying this more than than just keep it clean and keep it down. So there's a whole other aspect of, gosh, you know, that was kind of interesting, you know, to look at his place and look at my place and, you know, maybe it's a, I don't know, it's one way of working with the weeds, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a method that a lot of people, it's, you know, I, I would call it a more new age method, let them all grow together. But I think personally, and I haven't consulted with the, panel on this, I, I don't think it's a biblical method. And, um, you know, Mrs. White has a quote, I can't tell you exactly where it will, is, but she says that our farms and gardens should be an object lesson of what the Lord wants to do in our hearts. And to me, that means we need to do everything we can to keep the weeds out of there. Um, so yes, it, that is a, a, a method. A lot of people just let it all go, you know, hey, it's natural. This is nature working. Um, okay, we've got time for just a couple questions, but can you come to the mic? So a couple weed questions. Yeah, my question was to Bob's last comment about the canopy and the, uh, my, my, my Hello, hello. I'm, uh, uh, my question was to Bob and his last question about the canopy. I mean, I've found that to be true, too, I, and I, I tell people, yeah, you know, but do you find on the uh, seed packets, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, maybe this is something that you could share with the group, is when you get a seed packet, you're like, well, what do, what do I space this as? And it has, it usually has two spacings, uh, an in-row spacing, like, you know, and then a between-row spacing. And, you know, and the in-row spacing I kind of take as, pretty gospel, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll listen to that one. But I find that the between row spacings, you know, between your rows is more geared towards tractor farmers. And if you're not a tractor farmer, if you're a home gardener, can you, um, my, my remedy to this has been to just sort of use the uh, in row spacing as my between row spacing to get that canopy cover. Do you find that true or do you have a different idea on that? 
I think that's a, a good general rule of thumb, but what we, you know, we do successive planting too. So we have found that our, our, our plant size varies depending whether um, we're growing, you know, uh, spring, summer, fall, or winter. So uh, ultimately that's, that's a good place to start. And I would think that the, 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 the plant spacing that's, that's uh, expressed on the packets is, is done by our land grant universities. It's for optimum yield in a field situation, usually a 30 inch spacing on beds. Uh, <clears throat> so if you apply that, uh, that length to the width as well, it should, it, it should be a good place to start. But we use primarily our experience in determining spacing. We go anywhere from 12 inches to 14 to 18 to 24 inches, depending on what time of year it is. And the criteria that I use is how large, I, I want that plant to fully cover the bed uh, when it's about 50% uh, grown. Uh, because then you have enough capacity for it to grow up and you, uh, you're not going to have problems with competition if, you, if, if, if the bed is covered when it's half grown. Okay, do we have one more weed question? Can you come up? We've got a mic over here. It's not so much quite a weed question as a asparagus bed management with with the weeds, because I'd like to put in a large asparagus bed for market, but am a little bit daunted with that type of management. Could you address the asparagus bed, maybe? Basically, you're talking about a, a perennial crop. Yeah. Um, this is a very interesting way of doing it. I'm not sure how, how much I... I don't know, but I've heard it done with asparagus, and I hear it's quite effective, but asparagus is very salt tolerant. Um, it's probably the most salt tolerant plant that I know that grows, and some people actually broadcast salt. Now, I don't know what the parts per million of, of what that needs to be to not kill the asparagus, to kill the weeds. That's something that you could do more research on, but um, it's effective at killing a lot of stuff, but not asparagus, so that might be something that you could look into. I, I, I don't want to disagree with you, Alan, but I think, you know, using toxic methods uh, when there are other approaches, I think, are better, and uh, salt does leach, and uh, it, I, I don't recommend using sodium chloride in, in your gardens in any, in any form, potassium chloride or sodium chloride. Uh, the important thing with asparagus is to start with a clean bed when you establish it. And asparagus, if you're starting it from plants particularly, you're going to be planting those, those, those root corms fairly deep, uh, 18 inches typically. And what I would suggest is, is to, uh, you know, till the area thoroughly first, uh, make your trench that you're going to plant your asparagus in, and then cover the new shoots with, with compost, dress them with compost about six inches deep. And then allow them to grow just in that the first year. And during the winter months, you can make use of something like the vinegar that, are, uh, uh, that, that Brad mentioned earlier. Vinegar is a good herbicide and burn back whatever is on the surface and then mulch it more heavily with compost and then put a final dressing of mulch once you've reached the, the soil level. And that'll, that'll eliminate a lot of your weeding problems. The other thing too with asparagus in terms of weeds is we have a real tendency to over harvest asparagus. And if you're going to get greedy, you're going to have weed problems because the canopy itself uh, during the later part of the growing season can provide some protection to the crop and also give you better quality and better longevity to your plants. 
Okay. Uh, you have a, a quick weeding question. Uh, she asked what ratio of vinegar uh, to use, and, and there are various uh, uh, types of vinegars that are certified for organic use. Uh, you can also just use straight household vinegar, but it needs to be at least 5% acetic acid to be effective. And I don't mix it with any water. I use it straight, and uh, it's important to add a surfactant with it also. Uh, surfactant is basically a, a, a product that allows it to penetrate the leaf surface and spread out on the leaf surface. And, and uh, uh, actually, for a home gardener, dishwashing detergent will serve as that surfactant. Uh, if you're going to do an acre, my suggestion would be to uh, go to the farm supply and get a, 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 an adjuvant or a surfactant from them and follow the labeled instructions for, uh, for herbicide use. Typically, it's 8 to 16 ounces per, per 100 gallons or so. One, one that we have used is Thermex. It's a yucca extract. It's a good, um, it works Thermex, T-H-E-R-M-X. Okay, well, we, we did a quick tour of weeds. So I think little attention's often repeated is, is the main message. And you have another weed question? I was wondering why you say use the tarps. Okay, explaining the tarps. What? The, the tarps, I, I would recommend J.M.'s book, The Market Gardener, because he talks about it in there. But it's just spreading it over your beds. Obviously, you're not growing anything while you're using that, but it's just a way of, of cleaning up. It's also, it works for cover crops. This was really exciting to me because I have tried to figure out how home gardeners can do cover crops and work them in easily. Um, you know, if they don't have the right equipment, but you can weed eat it, flail mow it, cover it, and let nature work it into the soil. With what you've experienced with the, the tarps, do you think that would work for the asparagus as well, as far as a winter cover, just tarp it over? Would that be an option? I prefer to use organic materials for that simply so that you get plenty of air uh, and, and moisture penetration. You know, one of, the, one of the critically important things in soil that we rarely talk about is oxygen. And one of the ways that oxygen gets into the soil, ironically, is after heavy rainfall. When the soil is saturated and that water moves through the soil profile, it creates a vacuum behind it that pulls in fresh air. And I, I, I don't know whether the, uh, a tarp would inhibit uh, that, but I, uh, that's a good opportunity to use, uh, you know, things like leaves or, or straw or first cutting hay or, or some other organic material. And I, just getting back to that as far as, I mean, I don't know, on my personal operation, I haven't found that uh, excessive mulching holds back the weeds at all. They just come right through it, and then it's more of a hassle to weed and manage them than it was in the beginning. Um, so I don't know. I don't know why it doesn't work for me, but you put it on deep, but man, in the Oklahoma, when you're in the south, that stuff just decomposes like crazy, and then you're back, and you're dealing with mulch, and you know, it, you can't get a, anything in there to weed it, so that's a challenge I've found. Yeah, Bermuda. 
yeah, so there's, there's a like lot the, of things the that great, but. there's a lot of things that can be done on a home scale that are more challenging when you're trying to do it on a commercial scale. You know, the volume of mulch can be a challenge but, and expensive. Okay, we need to move on just because of time. So let's talk about pests. Um, and, you know, that's a big topic. Let's first start with uh, a pest that is a big pest, I mean large pest, deer. What do we do with deer? When I was, in the Black, when I was at the Black Hills Health and Education Center, we moved the farm to a field that had a herd of deer that lived in this field for 15 years or whatever. I mean, it was over 100 head herd. Um, and we put up a nine-foot deer fence, and the deer jumped it <laughs> like it wasn't there. I mean, they, they jumped it. If it was your beats, it wouldn't be good for them. Um, so I lived out there. I slept in my car out there and made it an unpleasant place for them for weeks, and that mitigated it. Um, when we moved to the new farm where we're at now, before I planted anything, I put up an eight-foot deer fence and have had absolutely zero problem with deer in a place where everyone warned me I was going to have deer problems. And so the fact that I, the first precaution for me was to put the fence up before there was ever anything there they really wanted or knew there was anything there they were going to want um, was, a, was a, a very strategic move for me. Secondly, um, well, we'll just leave it at deer for now since that was the question. I'm going to uh, basically echo what, what Larry said. Uh, when we established our place, the first thing that we did was erect the fence and disrupt those patterns of travel. We baited the fence with, uh, we use an electric fence, and uh, ours is only about seven and a half to eight feet tall. But we baited the fence with some uh, aluminum foil and, and peanut butter and uh, gave them a very un unpleasant experience. And we've been there five years now. In the fall, when, when deer season starts, right about now, uh, oftentimes we'll, we'll, we'll get rogue deer in the neighborhood that may decide to, to or aren't aware that the fence is there, and, and occasionally we'll get one in in the fall. But it's a very rare circumstance, and they've never caused any, any damage on the farm. So I would say if it's possible at all to dissuade the deer before they know there's something there because they will easily go over a 10, even a 12-foot fence if there's something desirable on the other side. And, uh, and growing sweet potatoes at Heartland, I know that we had fences that were 10 and a half feet tall. The deer were accustomed to, to, to the area before we put the fence up, and we planted sweet potatoes out there one year. And I had no idea that deer could eat so much sweet potato vine, but they basically decimated about two acres of, of sweet potatoes. So it is a problem to, to, to take very seriously. Also make good uh, friends with your neighbors that are deer hunters. We invite our neighbors uh, to come over and do pest control for us. And remember that deer are terrorists. They're all trained by Al-Qaeda. They're not hungry. They simply want to destroy our food supply, and they need to be considered as such. Now, when they're outside of my garden, they're beautiful, and we enjoy them, and we love to watch them and look at them, uh, but uh, they, they truly are terrorists. I want to make a plug here for <clears throat> Dysinger's dog. Um, <laughs> 
this dog, I mean, and, and this probably works more on a, on a smaller scale farm um, where you, you're not having acres where a dog can't smell something that's eaten a field, but, you know, in a slow, and it, also we went to uh, JM's farm up in Quebec, and he has a dog, and he doesn't have any fences over there, and uh, he's like a good dog, give him some dog food, especially one like, uh, what's that dog called that you have? Yeah, I mean, th these guys, and especially in Oklahoma, our biggest issue right now is not deer, it's armadillos. And boy, man, they'd go after it now. Y you know, you'd some find a hole in your greenhouse and there'd be a dead armadillo in it, you know, that the dog's buried. But other than that, you know, they keep them away. And he's a great dog. I mean, they were great hunters and great protectors of the garden. So on, where you don't want to have to spend immediately on a fence, a good dog that you know will chase deer in, in a close area of your gardens, keep it close to your house, I would think that would be quite effective. Dogs are not 100% effective like a fence, but they can be very effective. And what we have done is put an underground fence around our main garden area and give, give a, a border for them to patrol. And so they, they literally just patrol the fields and then, you know, fences have a downside, and that is maintaining along them. So with an underground fence, you don't have that. But I have to, you know, sometimes they sleep. <laughs> and sometimes they're on the other side of the barn. So it's not going to be 100% effective, but they are very effective. And another kind of fencing I would like to just mention is the black uh, nylon fencing that's seven and a half feet tall. That's what we use and, and it's portable. So we just use eight foot T posts with an electric, the yellow electric wire insulators at, on the top that we just hang the fence on. It comes down and kind of goes out at the bottom. It's not the way the company recommends, you know, they want you to put in four by four posts and stake it down but it has been very effective for us. And then we just, we only fence those crops that we know deer really love. Sweet potatoes, beets. Um, they go for carrots some, carrot tops. Um, strawberries, <laughs> that's, that's strawberries, what else? Bean, green beans. <laughs> Okay, yeah, if they're hungry enough, they'll go for most anything, but if they've got a lot else around, they definitely prefer some crops over others. We're really in the forest, so we have had a terrible time with the deer, but we finally cured. I don't think I've had one in the last 10 years. What we have trouble with is the coons, so we took an eight-foot high deer fence with power poles cut off that were at least eight feet above ground, we bury the fence in the ground, but we, and then we take the three-quarter, three-quarter netting, take that up. I put uh, extension brackets on the top of these poles, and I put a continuous wire around there and hang this, hang that, let it loop back down over there, and that also stopped the, uh, the raccoons. I don't know. Do you ever have trouble with raccoons? They are, they are thicker than mice where we are. I, it would have been a ni nice to take a poll of you all about your specific insect problems. We, we obviously don't have time for all of them, so I'm just going to raise one which we're, we have a challenge with, and that is cucumber beetles. I'd like to hear from some of the rest of you 
um, how you deal with cucumber beetles. I, I would just say with any, the, the first place to start with any of the problems is healthy plants. Um, soil amending. A proper soil amendment where the plant is healthy, vigorous, and mineral density is high, sugar levels are up, and most of your bugs would prefer something else. That's the first place to start with, with all of it, um, in my estimation. I mean, I didn't say this first because we're talking about deer, and deer don't seem to care about that so much. Um, you know, after that, um, most people would probably disagree with me, but I share. <laughs> That's a good concept to have, but sometimes they can get pretty greedy. <laughs> Uh, I, I agree with what Larry said, uh, you know, healthy plants is, is your, your first line of defense, but I want to dispel a myth. There are a lot of people that advocate that if you have the right soil balance of microorganisms and healthy plants, that you won't have problems with pests. That, that's an absolute myth. I've never seen that to be, to be true. Uh, it is uh, helpful to impart resistance to those pests, and that's what the healthy plants do, and also what little damage they sustain. They overcome more easily than a weakened plant, but simply dealing with the soil alone is not going to be the solution. One of the techniques that we've used really successfully for the past three years, and I'm, I'm really happy to be able to share this with you, I haven't, to, I haven't to, had to treat any insect problems for three years on the farm. And it's because we use a, a, a principle of trap cropping. And uh, in fact, West Virginia University is so excited about the results that they've seen on our place. I've been working with one of the extension service people on it. They're actually investing some money this year uh, to do some, uh, some long-term studies on trap cropping for using various plants. And trap cropping, if you're unfamiliar with it, is basically the use of one uh, plant to attract the pests away from your desired crop and it's that the, the, the trap crop itself is usually a member of the same family of plant. So our trap crop for broccoli for example is a variety of cabbage. We found that there's a particular variety of cabbage that the cabbage loopers absolutely love and they will go for this cabbage rather than the broccoli and uh, they fully infest the cabbage. It's a sacrificial plant. You drop it in a bucket of soap and, and kill off the insects, but it's worked really effectively for us. Now, with the uh, cucumber beetles that you were talking about, we found that there are a couple of varieties of squash that work for us as a trap crop for the cucumber beetles. And also for cucumber beetle, there's a repellent that we've had some success with. This isn't to be used on the plant, but around the base of the plant, and that is mixing a couple tablespoons of powdered sulfur uh, with about two and a half ounces of insecticidal soap per gallon. Now the insecticidal soap is not to kill the insect, it's just a carrier uh, and, and helps hold the, the, the powdered sulfur in suspension. Uh, but the insects don't like that acidic environment and during the time that those cucumbers are germinating, some of that sulfur on the surface of the soil is oxidizing slightly. It's, it's creating a little SO2 and they can seem to, uh, to detect that and, and it works somewhat as a repellent. But you don't want to spray it on the plants, just around the plants. Can you say that? Uh, the insecticidal soap I use at the labeled rate, which is usually two and a half ounces per gallon, and I'll include two tablespoons of powdered sulfur per gallon. And just mix that up thoroughly and spray it around the base of the plant. 
Most insects do not like uh, an acidic environment. They don't like uh, sulfur. They don't like uh, spider mites also are, are, are fairly easy to repel with sulfur. Uh, but by spraying it on the ground instead of the plant, uh, you'll protect your plant from the phytotoxic effects of sulfur. And especially if they're young plants, that can be significant. They can burn the leaves quite easily. Yeah, I, I can agree with with both of you guys on some of those things. You know, I don't mind sharing some of my stuff in my garden, but when I come to my field crops, I usually am pretty protective as far as the insects go. But in regard to cucumbers, uh, cucumber beetles, we grow a fair amount of cucumbers for market. Um, what we've kind of come to, not necessarily because it works both ways, but we decided to, we used to transplant our cucumbers, grow them in the greenhouse, and then we'd transplant out, but they got too lanky compared to the other stuff and timing, we'd have to plant later. So what we end up doing, on our scale, now on a large scale, you know, I could I tell you maybe what I would do on a larger scale, but we, we end up um, pulling our beds, putting on a transplant mix, which is a liquid, rather than putting the plants in at that time, we go ahead and plant our seeds right in the, in the, uh, in the field uh, through the plastic mulch. And then we'll hoop that and we'll cover it with uh, fabric. And then that fabric, we've covered as much as five acres with fabric. So we put hoops in and we, you know, you saw in some of the pictures, we'll have sheets sometimes. You can buy sheets that, I don't know, 100 feet wide and 1,200 feet long. And you can sheet that thing in, in just a few, just a quick time. And then we just let it be. And as those, then that protects. If you get it on quick and get it in right away, then the beetles don't get in. And it gives us the plants that are growing like a greenhouse underneath there. As soon as it blooms, then we're way ahead of the bugs. Aphids too, so as, it, as soon as it blooms, we pull those off so the bees can get in. And then we're just, then we'll go ahead and go in with a cover spray. And we use a mix of a cover spray, kind of using, in the tree crops, we've used, uh, we've had to deal with uh, oriental fruit moth and peach trig borer, calling moth, some of those things. So we're, we've been using, a, 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 when we're doing peaches, we've been using a pheromone confusion, which using that science, you know, is kind of my way of dealing with, with uh, some of these other bugs, but we're using, rather than using a confusion, we use somewhat a confusion. We go in with a cedar oil, which is kind of acts in the same way, kind of confuses the, the bugs' receptors, and we'll, we'll cover spray with that, with some other stuff we use in our, what I call my witch's brew. We have a, if you want to know what we do, we, over, we use oral boost, we use cedar guard, we use, depending on the pest, we used uh, some other materials in there if we're using for worms or for, but for, for cucumbers specifically. Um, that's how we deal with that. And then I just, by the time they're up and running, we're way ahead of it. And the, then we're just picking. And then we run. We run as fast as we can until, you know, the bugs can get, can get bad, but we have, uh, at times, usually we're done. By the time we get our crop off and, and then we're, we try to get in early and get out because the later generations seem like they come on. But cucumber beetles only seem like they're in the spring. When they first come out, if you share, if you share that first two leaves, you're done. You know, then you're, you don't even have a plant, so then you don't have anything. You, I do. Okay. I, um, cucumber beetles have been a big problem for us in the past because a whole healthy big plant, huge plants that could be 10 feet long in a day, they're wilted down like that. So I... I think it's good to try to benefit to keep them from dying small, but cucumber beetles can knock down big plants like that. Um, bacterial wilt, fusarium wilt, 
um, some of these things. And I, I think, and I'm just going to put a, a plug in here for something that uh, Sean Spidell, which is doing the soil fertility thing over there, you're really not, yes, they do scarring on the plant, but really the biggest fear that I have from cucumber beetles is that they're going to kill the whole plant like that. But it's not them that's killing it, it's their carrier of these diseases. And knowing how these diseases flow within the plant is a, a critical aspect of that. He actually recommends applying at an initial rate. Um, he told me, I, I don't want to misquote him, but I want to say, ask him later on. Well, maybe I shouldn't even say numbers if I don't know him exactly. But um, he uses uh, azomite, which is a biologically, once it gets in the soil, it's a biologically available form of silica. And uh, silica is uh, known to actually um, be used as a plant as a blocker for uh, stopping some of these types of bacteria and viruses within the plant and preventing them from spreading to the rest part of the plant. So quick testimony on that. This is the first year I used it, and we had excessive salt levels in our plants this year, and we lost all three crops. But we found out that it was to salt because we started leaching after that, and the plants came back beautifully, beautifully. Um, but even through all that stress with the salt and all this kind of stuff going on, uh, we did not lose one plant to bacterial will or fusarium will, and we had cucumber beetles in there galore, lots of them. It was actually the aphids that we lost the plants to, not to, none of them died because of bacterial wilt. Um, and that was really incredible to me because I'm like, there's cucumbers in here, I should be losing plants, but we didn't lose one. And so, you know, um, giving the plant some mechanisms, you know, silica isn't even considered a plant nutrient from, they don't even test for it most places. I don't even know of a place that does test for it. Um, but, you know, there are elements that we don't even know about yet that we're exploring into that could be pretty crucial to some of these, some of these aspects. So, um, something to consider there. I forgot to mention one thing in my cover spray is, which is maybe a critical thing, is we use surround, which is a kaolin clay, which is reflectant. It's basically, the fields look completely white, like our cover, but after the cover's off, we spray them and they're completely white before the fruit comes on. So you don't want to get on the fruit because it's hard to get off. But that just reflects the light and seems like it, it's more of a repellent. And um, so that seems to be pretty effective too. Okay. It's hard because I know there's so many more questions and uh, we, c we can take, let's take, is this an insect question? The azomite the you speak of, uh, how do you apply that? There's a, there's a powdered form and there's a granular form that I think the sticker that is, is a, a wood, um, uh, what do they call it? Anyways, it's the sticky part, whatever. It's a, well, I don't know if it's called a sap. Anyways, it's a pellet, and that's what they bind it with. Um, and I applied uh, 300 pounds per acre. I'm only doing one seventh. Understand this. When you're, when, you're, when you're working with a smaller amount of acreage, what, like I am, at one seventh of an acre, and you're getting, you know, we'll just round it up, you know, 20,000 per acre, which I think is uh, per one seventh of an acre, which, you know, you're looking at 100. You have the money to invest in your soil to do a lot, to invest a lot more in your soil quality and health than other people do. So if you're a bigger scale grower, um, those rates you'd need to, you just can't afford that. But at a small scale, you can. And uh, that's, what, that's what I applied it. And then uh, just to maintain it, 100 pounds every year is what I'm going to be doing. Um, you know, I, is that gunshot? Do we really know? You know, you kind of wonder, but that's what I'm going to try.
Okay. Okay. Any last comments here? I just would would say one of the reasons that we're do you if you have a healthy plant, like Bob said, you're not going to mitigate pest pressure. You're not going to alleviate weeds because you have proper soil balance. The, things are going to grow if you have healthy soil. You just change your weed spectrum. Bug pressure, if the plant grows at its proper rate, will generally outgrow weed or bug pressure. I mean, you, you may have minimal damage, but if you have a healthy crop that's growing at a proper rate, it's not in the ground as long, and it's growing fast enough to sort of outgrow most of the weed pressure. That's been my experience. And I mean, the reality is when we were in the Black Hills, we did not have balanced soil, but we had over-mineralization was probably the biggest issue we were facing there. And we would have grasshoppers, and everybody would come to market, and the grasshoppers had eaten everything they had for most of their plants, and we had them. I mean, I would walk through, and it was like a wave of grasshoppers parting the Red Sea as I walked, and they weren't eating our plants. One thing we haven't mentioned, we prayed. We prayed daily for the garden. And not just me, I hope everybody at the institution. And so don't forget that you have promises. Amen. Thank you for bringing that out. Okay. What? I need some help in managing voles. They eat all our root vegetables. I don't know what to do. I've tried everything. Dogs are good for voles. You just have to weigh the, the benefit. You know, they'll get the voles, but they're going to dig for them. So I, we haven't figured that one out as far as benefit versus risk. Okay, I got called out on this one. Uh, my wife solved my vole problems for me. Uh, last year I was out at the Sustainable Preparedness Expo in uh, Spokane and Seattle, and while I was away, my wife undertook to talk with some of our neighbors about what we should do about our voles, and their suggestion unanimously was get a cat. Now, we've always avoided that because my entire family is very allergic to cats, and I'm not, a, a, I'm not particularly fond of them. Uh, but there was a stray that came along shortly after she was told this by the senior folks at the senior center next door. Within 15 minutes, mom promised them that she would pray about it and that the next stray cat that came along she would take. That happened 15 minutes later. So I came home and I was the proud owner of, of, of a cat. And um, I, I have known that cats can be effective for this. And frankly, uh, I'm, it was an answer to prayer because we were having some significant problems with voles in parts of our garden. And since we've had that cat, only one cat, and uh, our, our cat's name, uh, her name is Bob because she's Bob's cat. And uh, she hasn't been trained. She was, she was uh, you know, a few weeks old when we got her. She hasn't been trained, but we don't uh, let her inside. She is an outdoor cat. Uh, but I have to uh, uh, say here that I believe that the reason it's effective is it was the wisdom of the old timers, but more than that, it was prayer. And this aspect of praying for our crops is really our first and foremost line of defense. Do not neglect that because everything else that you hear and that we say today 
is, is, is useless and unless you seek the assistance of heavenly agencies. We heard earlier, too, about the importance of orderliness in our gardens, and I think that is also very important so that we have those heavenly agencies in cooperation with us. And one other thing with prayer is when you go to market and people say, this is the most amazing food I've ever tasted. What did you do? You have a perfect opportunity to witness. You say, we prayed for it. And that, that's an incredible, you give the glory to God. Okay, we've got a few minutes left for diseases. Um, let's just hear a shout out from the congregation Oh, squash bugs. That's not a disease, but um, no, I, I understand. We, we need to talk about squash bugs, but we don't have time. Southern blight. Okay. Yes. Okay. And, and let me just say, back to squash bugs, you know, we are going to have more time to, well, I was going to say tomorrow, I guess it's this afternoon, more time for questions and answers, more general, just, you know, things you wanted to hear that you haven't heard yet, so we can maybe address some of those. So who wants to deal with, I don't know. If I, uh, I this speaks to your particular issue, but it also speaks to all issues that we face in the garden uh, in terms of both diseases and pests. You know, we've been programmed to think that when we find a problem in our garden, what we need is the nuclear weapon that zeroes in. What we need is the nuclear weapon that zeroes in and eradicates that problem, and that's really a very convoluted way of looking at the problem. We have to see things as a three-sided uh, uh, situation that all has to come together in order to have problems with disease. And only one of those is the pathogen. The other two sides are the environment for the pathogen and our host plant. And we have opportunities for managing the host and the environment to the disadvantage of the disease that has to be considered before we reach for the spray bottle. If we're reaching for something to eradicate the disease itself, that means that we've neglected uh, to do some work on the other sides of that triangle. And the reality is that with most of the fungal pathogens that you're going to have in the south here, if you start on a treadmill of treatment for those problems, they're, they're going to get worse and worse. You know, the effect of sin in this world is all around us. And one of the most serious ways that it's affecting us right now that most people are absolutely oblivious to is the fact that just as we see an increase in, in new diseases of humanity, Ebola for example, we are seeing a whole new explosion of mutations in some of the pathogens for our plants too. There are five new strains of Phytophthora infestans that are going through the East Coast right now that affect our potatoes and our tomatoes. Some of these are very vigorous and they're going to get worse, not better. So what we need to, to do is reset our thinking a little bit to understand that if you're having continual problems with a particular disease, look at things like plant spacing, plant timing, 
your, your irrigation methods, the, the very plants themselves, how to select the right varieties that might be resistant to some of those things, rather than just looking for the immediate solution for, you know, of, of how to spray it. The other thing that I want to say is this can be a pretty comprehensive study because there are a lot of things that influence a plant's susceptibility to disease. And if you're having problems like that, we really need to know more information, just as a doctor does when you visit him. If you walk into the doctor's office and say, hey, doc, I've got a headache, he's not going to be able to know whether you've got a brain tumor or you're just dehydrated without knowing some history, some background, and some examination, too. So don't take your disease or your press problems as a one-size-fits-all. It's a comprehensive view that has to fall within the parameters of, of what I call this disease triangle for us to really come to long-term solutions so that you're not relying on just weaponry. And I would put forth, to, how many people here follow the health message? Trying. Trying to follow the health message, let's say it that way. Preventative is our first line of defense such as it with our plants. That's what Bob is saying, I think. We have preventative measures and we should start there. Okay, uh, any other, well, I mean, what they're kind of saying is you don't, you don't focus on the specific diseases, so I think that's, that's wise counsel. You know, I don't always know the disease that's that's attacking my plant and honestly I don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly which one it is I'm just trying to figure out how to keep it from happening again um, Alan do you have something just a quick um, kind of something that I've done this year and this is this cucumber crop has just been a bee in my bonnet for too long but you know the Lord knows what he's doing in, in this experience but uh, you know, when, when I'm dealing with a problem, especially trying, because the thing is, is that people are like, why do you take a soil test? It's so expensive. And it's like, well, if I can take it now and prevent it for the rest of my growing experience, that's a value to me. So don't be afraid to invest in your education by taking these types of tests. But this year I took, uh, when we run, started running into issues with our, with our cucumbers, um, first I took a soil analysis. Okay. Do I have all my all my ducks in a row. Okay, so you eliminate that factor, or at least it's within ranges that I shouldn't be having this problem. Then from there on, you take a leaf analysis, which um, if anyone knows one, I'm not going to go into exactly how to take that. So we looked at the leaf analysis, and if the levels in the soil don't match with the leaf analysis, my levels in the soil, were, as far as nitrogen were concerned, were, hot, were very high, and potassium were, were, were good, okay? But in the leaf analysis, they were deficient. So now you know that, okay, it's in the soil, but it's not getting to the leaf, and you know what elements to zero in on. So then we started zeroing and say, okay, which elements are affecting which elements here? And so you start doing some math, which is what they're talking about in the soil fertility class, you know, what could possibly be causing this here? If on that point, this is after three crops. I did this for each crop, just trying to, okay, what numbers are we dealing with here? And it was uniform between all crops. And then one guy I was talking to said, well, have you taken a soluble salts test on your soil? It's a $1.70 test, but they don't have it on Kinsey's test or Perry's. I don't know why that it's not a part of their standard package, but you have to pay for it separately. And uh, anyways, we zeroed in on it. Guess what was causing? Well, let me put it this way. This is what we think is causing the problem right now. You never say you know what it is because you might think it is and it might not be. But what we, what we think it is right now is that I bought a compost. I put 35 tons per acre. 
get it, I'm only doing a seventh of an acre, so it's not 35 tons that I purchased, but anyways, put it on there. This compost actually had 1,500 uh, parts per million of so soluble salts, and at those rates, in a greenhouse, with increased decomposition, we took a soluble salts test, and our levels were up. That basically, the nutrition can be fine, but if that salt's too high, it's going to be pulling from your plant. And this happened to be a manure-based, a horse-based compost, which I don't know if they were looking on salt or whatever or why, but see what I'm saying? It's a progression of elimination here, and that's how I, I've gone about, gone about it. And we started watering, and these plants just poof, came right back up, and it's like leaching, okay, excessive watering. And they came back, and I was like, okay, now we know something's going at least better here, and you keep moving on that way. But that's kind of the process that I've been going through. I don't know if that's the best, but that's what I did. I would just put in a plug here for Bob Gregory's uh, video seminar. Of course, you know, he has a training program. I think he's going to be talking about, when is that? Okay. Saturday night, I think, yes. Um, but he also, if you can't go to his place, has a DVD series. What is it? Nine? How many discs? Six discs. Six discs ten hours or something that goes into more depth some of the things that we can't go into here. So I think you have those available here. So that's, that's an investment in your education. Well, I think we are just about out of time for this session. I hope we've answered a few questions. I wanted to, back to the Southern Blight, there's a product we've used quite effectively and the name has just escaped me. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a biological, um, oh. when, when it comes back to me, I'll, I'll give it to you because we have found when we, we drench the soil with that at, at first planting, Yeah, yeah, it starts with an A. Actinovate, that's it, actinovate. When we have been proactive with that, uh, it has been very effective for us. If we put it on after the fact, it doesn't seem to work the same. Uh, it, you know, we had problems with... Um, <laughs> my mind's going blank here, in, in lettuce... Uh, sclerotinia, had problems with sclerotinia, and when we drenched the beds at planting, didn't have those problems. But when, when the plants were already up and growing, and then we drenched, it didn't seem to be as effective. So that's just our personal observation. I'm not putting that forth as science, but actinovate, oh, sclerotinia. It will start as just the, the plants will just start dying. They, they rot at the base of the plant, and then it spreads. We use the actinovate in our, um, right away, we, when we mix our transplant mix, before we put the seed in. And you found it effective? Well, it's, it's more, in our case, yes. I, I mean, it, we haven't had any trouble. It's, it's more preventative. It, it's more preventative. We haven't really... Um, um, you know, we've had trouble in the past, but we've usually we have rainy days before transplanting out, and we got to keep our plants in the house, and we can't keep them dry, 
uh, that's one thing, maybe a different disease, but uh, so that's what we do. I just encourage everyone, these, these biological things are nice and, and, they're, and they're good, but why is that not already in the soil? Why aren't there always these checks and balances within the system? I would just encourage all of you, um, I've seen this on many farms, we, tried, we get to a point where it's like, I can't figure this out, so I'll use this. And that's okay because we have to do stuff to prevent from losing our shirts. But never stop pursuing the true issue because Mrs. White has a statement where she says, a disease is within nature, and this is, this is a paraphrase, not an exact quote, uh, is nature trying to correct nature's laws that have been transgressed, okay? So there are laws within the systems, even though we don't, might not know them yet, but I, I strongly believe that we need to pursue what those laws are and try to figure it out because there is a root issue why this is happening. It's not just because there's, you know, we're always going to have this trouble. There are things within the system that, that there's a root issue to. I, I strongly believe that, and I'd encourage everyone to continue to pursue that solution. Well... We, we're going to close this session here, but I just want to put in a, a plug for agriculture um, in relation to Alan. You know, I, I don't want to say too much here, but um, when, when we first met the Silers, the parents came to us and were kind of like, we don't know what to do with this kid. He, all, all he can think about is agriculture, and, you know, he's, he just eats and drinks and sleeps agriculture, um, you know, and they were trying to do more traditional education, I guess you could say, at home. Um, and, you know, my response was, praise the Lord, you know, there's, um, let them let loose. And you can see, I think, that although he may not know everything, because none of us do, um, he's learning. And he's probably learned a lot more than, than those who've been in a more formal schooling. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org dot org.